0: Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition, as we do every week. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out West, Adam Stenko, also out West, Dan Dickow, the number 28 overall pick in 2 a first-team All-American at Gonzaga. Check out all of his work at Scorebook Live out in high school basketball in the state of Washington, and also the podcast series through Scorebook Live, the quarantine series. Some really good in-depth but short interviews that I've really enjoyed during this quarantine time. This episode of Rejecting the Screen is brought to you by BuiltBar.com. It's high protein, low sugar, great tasting protein bars. Just use the promo code LOCKEDON and get $10 off your first order. Dan, I know in your office you've got a Michael Jordan signed basketball from the very first game that you played against Jordan when he was a wizard. How did you get the ball? How did you get it signed?
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, my office here in Spokane has kind of been uh, a little bit of a memorabilia wall on one side for for some memories. On the other side, it's uh, if I turned a a camera around with the different pictures I've posted on social media, you would see kids gear, (laughs) school backpack, (laughs) shoes, all that stuff. But, you know, you're right. I do have an autographed basketball from my rookie year. Uh, It was Jordan's last year with the Wizards and our equipment manager one of the equipment managers with the hawks at the time uh was a good friend of mine we became friends and you know i just said hey can can you get the game ball and have jordan sign it and he was able to get it and he took it down to the locker room and had had jordan sign it for me and um you know it's kind of one of those cool mementos that i have from my career that i can look back and and kind of you know find some inspiration on certain days, i can find some memories on certain days. um and it's just fun to look at.
0: What kind of ask is that?
1: You know, it's funny because he was kind of one of the assistant equipment managers at the time and we became, you know, friends pretty quickly. Uh he is now kind of one of their their head guys with the the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, I believe he is the head equipment manager. And, you know, it was kind of one of those things where before the game I was like, "Hey, if there's any way you can get the game ball for me and, and get it down um, and and have Jordan sign it? Uh, I would be eternally grateful. <laughs> it would be a, it would be awesome. He goes, yeah. Let me see what I can do. I'll do my best. And lo and behold, uh, he got it done for me.
2: We'll 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 go back in time, Dan, and and talk about some of uh, some of your early days and and all and and throughout your career. But while we're on the topic of requests that you've put in for people that work for teams. Mind telling Noah the story of uh, when uh, you tried to get something from Will Ferrell at a Celtics game? Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: that was uh, that, that's an interesting one right there. So it would have been my uh, fourth year in the league. I was with uh, the Boston Celtics at the time, and we were playing Charlotte. The Bobcats uh, is what they were at the time down in Charlotte, and you know, I was playing maybe ten, twelve minutes a game at the time. I wasn't starting. Um uh and we go through, you know, the start of the pregame introductions and I sit down and I look across the court and Will Farrell is sitting courtside, uh directly across from from the Celtics bench. And, you know, I'm uh as most people are, you know, a big fan of Will Farrell, he's a great funny actor and i sent a ball boy over and said hey can you ask will ferrell if he can if he'll give me his hat so i kind of watch the ball boy go over there and and talk to will ferrell and he kind of looks over at me and he's pointing at his hat and He's laughing he's shaking his head and, and the ball boy comes back and he said no um he's he's not going to give you a hat i looked at the ball boy i said you know and i'm trying to keep my all my attention on the game obviously cuz you know this is early in the first quarter i probably obviously. won't go in until maybe minutes left in the first quarter maybe start of the second quarter those were about the time frames I would go in at that moment that season and uh ball boy comes back over and I look back and I say hey just go back over one more time just say I want the hat I want to I'd like you to I want him to sign it for him I'm a big fan this that and the other and the ball boy goes back over there and Will Ferrell again takes his hand but this time he's kind of you know typical Will Ferrell what you see in movies and interviews is becoming a little bit more demonstrative and you can kind of see the the hand gestures and kind of you know the goofiness that that he kind of puts out there and uh, ball boy comes back over and he goes uh, will, will will give you the hat on one condition that <laughs> you go out to the bars with him and hang out after the game tonight <laughs> and it's like we're in the middle of the game now you know obviously deep into the first quarter and I'm just kind of like looking around like shaking my head it's like there's no way we're we fly out directly after the game um, back to Boston because I think that was the first game of a of a doubleheader. we had to get back so the flight was directly after the game uh, but looking back that would have been a heck of a story to be able to tell friends and, and people that you know what i i blew off a team charter and i stayed back and kind of bar hopped with will farrell and i kind of hung out with him for a night
0: who is the biggest celebrity you've ever bar hopped with wow um
1: you know i don't know i never was a really big kind of nightlife kind of bar scene guy um you know but you have a couple occasions here there where you know different groups and factions from your team go out and you know you have dinner uh, maybe not necessarily you're, you're hanging out at a bar you're you're having a dinner or whatever um mm-hmm. but you know that that's a that's a tough one i don't know i mean um uh you know there's a couple times that you know i've i've played golf with you know guys like Mark Rippin, um, and then we'd sat around and have had a, have a beer or two afterwards. Um, you know, some different coaches you've kind of come across here or there, or broadcasters after a game now, because that that's kind of what what I'm doing during the college basketball season, and, and just sharing some stories.
2: But um, that it has to be John Stockton, right? It's got to be John Stockton. Oh, okay, well, you know,
1: now that you say John Stockton, yes that that would be that would be the one. You know, um, I, I guess. I, I hate to say this and, and make it sound like, it. oh, it's just John Stockton and, and I'm used to hanging out with him or whatever, because that sounds really bad. Um, but a couple of years ago, uh, during it would have been Hoop Fest weekend, which is one of the most incredible basketball weekends for anybody, whether you're a fan, you're a player, you're a parent, whatever, in Spokane. It's the biggest three-on-three tournament in the world. It's in Spokane. And a few years back, um, Gonzaga basketball had a um, had a – reunion a kind of alumni reunion weekend at the same time so it's saturday night after hoop fest is kind of winding down and all the former gonzaga players you know go to uh uh kind of a a conference room just off of the new arena mccarthy athletic center and we're we're sitting there there's food there's beers we're sharing stories and this that and the other and everybody's family's there there's games set out on the lawn outside for for the kids and i'm kind of sitting there and you know my my family we're ready to go back and and kind of just be done for the day um had a beer too and 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 telling stories with john and about five or six other guys and i said i get up and i'm like all right guys good good to see i know i don't see you guys as much as we all would like but um great to connect again today and and this weekend um i'll I'll catch you guys later (laughs) john looks at me straight in the face he goes you're not going anywhere i'm like what he goes sit down, have another beer. Come on. We don't, we don't get to hang out enough. <laughs> uh, So I, so I quickly had another beer as quickly as I could. So I wouldn't um delay my family too much, but you know, it was that, that would kind of be one of the other ones. You know, I've seen John plenty of times at his uh, family bar, Jack and Dan's, which his dad owned for years. And now one of John's uh, best friends, it's college teammates, Jeff Condal owns up here in Spokane. So um, you know what, good call. That probably would have been closest to a, a celebrity bar hopping was with John
2: Stockton. No, we'll hear more from from Dan in a moment. You know, he was one of the all-time workout guys, the work he put in to get his shot the way that it was and and, and working on his game. And, you know, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, before <laughs> we even started this interview just to get ready for Dan Dickow, I had to go and get some shots up. I was just in the mood, you know, watching old Dickow tapes at Gonzaga, uh, watching him and, in the pros. And so in order to do that, though, I need some energy. And uh, there is not a better protein bar out there on the market. It's really not even a protein bar built bar. It's almost like a candy bar. The only thing is high in protein, low in sugar. This thing is unbelievable. We've talked about it before all the different flavors they have chocolate cookie dough. Um, There's there's even a peach cobbler. I mean, they it just goes on and on mint brownie, peanut butter chocolate all these covered in hundred percent chocolate. They are delicious. Like I said, they taste like candy bars, but they're low in sugar, high in protein. It's not like cliff bars, which mask themselves as protein bars. And then you give them to your kids and realize you just threw them on a sugar high. These things taste great. They're unbelievable and no crazy additives. I can't get enough of them. And also of course, if you go to builtbar.com, use the promo code locked on, you get $10 off your first box. Just go to builtbar.com, use that promo code locked
0: on and get $10 off your first purchase. What's the most looking back on it? I mean, Stockton's the guy that you grew up idolizing, wearing number 12 because of him, but now becoming friends with him. But what? So now, what's the moment that you look back on from the early days of when you got to be around him that you think, oh my God, I can't believe I asked him that?
1: Yeah, that was, that's an easy one for me. It was the very first time that I met John Stockton. So I transferred over from the University of Washington uh, after two seasons. And I always heard the stories and, and, and the guys told me, you know, when I was going to, you know, show up on campus, hey, this is kind of how it works. You know, um, John will play pickup with us um, basically Monday through through Thursday. And he'll be in the gym and, and you'll get to play against him. You'll get to compete against him and, 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 you know, just be around him. And I was kind of like, that is true. That's serious. And so, um, show up on campus, our first time that we had open gym, um, it would have been my red shirt year. Obviously I walk into the gym after kind of getting ready to go in the locker room and I walk in and lo and behold, John Stockton is there. And, uh, I walk up to John and, you know, I'm kind of nervous because I'd never met him before. And he was one of my favorite players um, growing up. And i just walk up and and introduce myself and extend my hand and say, hi, I'm Dan Dickow. I I just transferred here to Gonzaga from University of Washington. I just want to say hello. He reaches out his hand to shake mine and says, hi, I'm John Stockton. And I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, I know who you are. You don't have to tell me. I needed to tell you who I was. So I think that was a that that was an interesting one for sure.
2: Dan, one more question on Stockton. I know that you guys ended up spending some time working out together, working on your games. What are what are some of the things that he was able to teach you that that maybe it just it, it felt different in terms of how he was instructing you?
1: Well, I think there's two stories that come to mind with John. Well, actually, three. Um, the, the first one would be. Um, that red shirt season of mine, after I had a chance to play with him in open gym a number of times and talk to him and he could see my game and we matched up against each other. Uh, the day before he left for training camp, and this was still my redshirt year, you know, I I, I said, hey, John, is there a chance I can get 10, 15 minutes with you and just kind of, you know, talk to you and you give me a breakdown on, on my game, a scouting report? And he said, sure, meet me here tomorrow at the weight room um and so i met i went up there and, I, and during his workout we just kind of chatted and, and talked about you know things that he saw in my game and, and where i could continue to improve and you know he had some really profound things and, and looking back at it the thing that stuck out to me the most was simplicity in your game um you know he had talked about a couple moves that i had done uh the first couple times that we had played each other he essentially said well that was wasted motion that's wasted movement." Um, you did all that and you didn't get an advantage. Why do it? Um, and so that really st- struck home to me. Um, the other would have been my, my senior year. Um, we had a chance to work out every single day in the in the mornings before um, he would play pickup with the Gonzaga team in the afternoons. And the reason it worked is because my, my uh, class load schedule was so light because I during my redshirt year, I got ahead of my credits and so my my senior fall schedule i had uh i believe it was one online class uh <laughs> one once a week class that was what? at night and then one other class that was like tuesday thursday early afternoon and so i had a, a very light class load and so i'd go down and work with john every day and i just saw one the simplicity in the workout two the focus in the workout and three i saw like hey you're not you don't need to reinvent the wheel with every workout. What do you need to be good at? Master that. Work on a few of the weaknesses here or there so you can continue and improve on it. And and I took that uh with me the rest of my career on how to work. Uh the third story I would take from John would be I believe it was after my rookie or second year in the league. I can't I can't can't remember exactly, but um I was in spokane for a couple days and um was in the gym and i we we, he worked me out a couple days you know so he had me in the gym for an hour and a half whatever and we kind of go over a bunch of things at the end of the workout just sitting there talking the most clear question he he could have asked me he said do you still love it i looked at him i said do i still love what he goes do you still love the game of basketball i looked at him i said absolutely it's 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 the greatest game i love it he goes okay good then you're gonna be fine Hmm. (laughs) you know because a lot of guys once they get into to the nba they make a little bit of money uh the focus goes elsewhere and um you know i thought that was another great question and a direct question that he asked early in my career
0: there are so many other players that come to mind when as we've been spending so much time talking about the eighties the and nineties of basketball um, and the physicality of it, but John Stockton is known as, as dirty as a point guard as it gets. And as he was known for setting tough screens and getting the elbow in whenever you could. I remember Barkley telling me at a camp years ago that John Stockton was the dirtiest player in the NBA he ever copped to that when you two were having conversations? Well, I wouldn't, that's
1: difficult for me to say because I never played against him um, mm-hmm. during those peak years in the NBA where where it was that physical, um, you know, and and I know Barkley uh, is as good of a, a, you know, person to speak on that as anybody. But I think the, the thing that I can kind of touch on with that is you know John wouldn't back down in those open gyms when I was a senior um in college he, he somebody who like me was a somewhat established at the college game he went at me as hard as he could and he wouldn't back down he would set screens that were very physical on me he would do the same with a with a, a freshman who just walked on campus a, a, a week ago um nowadays you know there he he has an open gym that has you know guys his age, my age, guys who are still playing overseas in Europe, uh, college guys and some some high school kids that, that he's trying to mentor a little bit here in Spokane. And he plays with the same amount of passion, the same physicality um, that he feels that it takes to win. Um, so I would never say he was dirty. I would just say um, he he figured out what he needed to do uh, to win for his team.
2: Talking about a couple of great point guards and you and John Stockton. Early in your career, you got a chance to play against another great point guard, Baron Davis, at a camp when you were back in high school. What was that experience like? And for people that didn't see high school Baron Davis, what does his game look like?
1: You know, B.D. has uh, has always been one of those guys that um, has been very skilled, has been very competitive, has been very athletic, and um, – know he kind of plays with an edge um you know i remember playing against him at nike camp um in high school and i was like wow this guy's good and then had a chance to play with him in college or sorry against him in college i was at UW, and and he was at ucla obviously and and he had a couple really (laughs) iconic and impressive dunks for that era of college basketball against us at poly i believe that was my freshman year um You know, and then I got a chance to be teammates with him in in New Orleans for a short stretch before he got traded to to Golden State, and he had that uh, really, really good run with the Warriors. Um, You know, Barron's one of those guys that um, had he not had some injuries, I know he tore his knee in college, he had some other knee injuries and some back issues in in the NBA. um, I think he would have had a chance to be one of the, the truly iconic point guards. Uh, I don't want to say top five point guards of all time because, you know, now you're starting to get into all these different comparisons, but had he not, he, he was a very good point guard, mm-hmm. a very good player, but had he not uh, had the injuries that he had, I think more and more people would recognize just how good he
0: was. Who, who was the guy in college or at one of those camps that you played in, in high school, one of those big national camps that gave you the biggest fits?
1: You know, I, I think, I look back to my Nike uh, All-American camp. Um, I was uh, the only kid from the state of Washington who was invited to, to that event that year. And so I took it as a, as a, a, a amount of pride and an uh, and honor to be there. Um, you know, I was on a team with Chris Burgess, who's now an assistant at BYU, um, who uh, I believe was in top five, maybe the number one ranked player yeah, going into to, camp the camp at the time. Uh, Corey McGetty was an underclassman. Um, he was from just outside Chicago, I believe it was Fenwick. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously then he went to Duke and then we were actually teammates in the NBA for a year with the Clippers. I know he had about a 12 year career. Um, you know, so those guys that were guys that were teammates of mine at that camp, um, that people would recognize the names. I, I remember, um, my dad and a friend were there and they actually snuck in a video camera. And so <laughs> I have, some film of those that camp to this day um and i've got film of you know elton brand being at camp i've got film of ron artest guarding me picking me up for court um way back in the day i mean there was there was a really uh there there was a, a crazy amount of good players there and what i think i learned that week was you know what i i belong at this level um skill-wise, I, I've got a lot of work to do to continue to get where I want to be. But I took that as a very, very positive step.
0: So Over the past now two and a half months, we've been out of New York City where we do not have a car. And we've been in suburban Pennsylvania where we grew up with a car. I don't really know how to take care of a car to the extent that folks who own cars really do. I'm not shocked. So I'm starting to think about, all right, well, if I need to replace this, I need to get this fixed. I got to take it to the shop. I got to do things. And rockauto.com has made me feel just a whole lot more comfortable in this process. It's a family business, been serving auto parts customers online now for 20 years. So go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. Gone are the days when you just go to the dealership. rockauto.com, the place to be for everything from engine control modules, to brake parts, to tail lights, to anything you would need for a steering wheel, to, does it sound like I know what I'm talking about? Whatever you need. You can get a new carpet there. rockauto.com's catalog is unique and really easy to navigate, which I need. And best of all, the prices are reliably low, And the same for professionals and the do-it-yourselfers. So why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Just go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. I can nearly guarantee that your part's going to be there. If you type in locked on in their how did you hear about us box, then they'll know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, right locked on in the how did you hear about us box at rockauto.com pat yourself on the back for a moment who was the guy the first guy that you ate up the first guy that was on all the lists that you just got the best of <laughs> oh
1: wow um you know i i, I don't know i mean cuz i was never a guy that you know, go out and score 45 points in one of these games. I was how, about, always, how about in college? Like, in college? Um, you know, I, I think when I was uh, at the University of Washington, that same game that Baron Davis I spoke of had a couple of iconic dunks. I was It was my freshman year. Um, I never really I, – I was kind of battling for minutes. We had a senior point guard who started. We had another senior point guard. Um, and myself that kind of picked up the slack with the extra minutes, um, but I think early in my career I always, you know, prided myself on on not ba- backing down from an opponent or not backing down from uh, an environment. And as a freshman, you know, I went in and and, and played really well um, at UCLA that year. I think I had eight points in about eight minutes. Now, doesn't mean I I comparing myself to you know, Baron or anybody else at that time, but I felt like, hey, you know what? I didn't back down. I made plays when they were presented to me to to have opportunities. Um, I look at, you know, my time at at Gonzaga, so my, my red shirt year, you know, I, I attacked practice every single day like it was a game, um, because I knew I couldn't play in any games. Uh so the very first uh it would have been an exhibition game and it wouldn't have been nobody would have seen it. Um, because, obviously, those games weren't on TV back then. Gonzaga didn't have the TV package that they have now. Um, but we played against a CBA team at the time, um, the Yakima Sun Kings, in our very first exhibition game. And I hadn't played in a real game since I, Arizona my sophomore year was the last game I played with a broken foot, having to guard Jason Terry, who became the player of the year that year. So that's, that's not very fun. That's not easy, playing guarding him on a broken yeah. foot but you fast forward 18 months later is my first real game back and it's against the cba team nobody knows um in spokane and gonzaga what to expect out of me nobody 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 cares west coast or nationally uh, about me or gonzaga basketball still at that time um we were still kind of like a an up-and-coming story but i remember that exhibition game against pros i think i had 29 points um and 6'4", six, 6'5", six, physical guards trying to pressure me, trying to, to get me out of my comfort zone. Uh, and I just remember playing really well and being like, okay, you know what? I know this wasn't a real game. This wasn't, you know, something that's going to count on our on our, on our our record. But I didn't back down, and I felt comfortable. And, and thinking that in the back of my mind, these guys are guys who have probably been playing in Europe. They're on the cusp of the NBA, um, different things. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm going to do. I'm going to play with confidence. A couple of weeks later we go down to Arizona. Um I think I had 20 against that Arizona team um with Jason Gardner, Gilbert Arenas, Lauren Wood, Luke Walton, Michael Wright. We end up losing by like 5. I broke my finger with about 4 minutes left. Um but that was another nice little kind of like, okay, you know what? Um you did make a good decision. You're in a good you're in a good place. Gonzaga, you know, you you're you're getting opportunity to kind of Um, expand your role within a a great uh, program Um, let's see where this can go and then after I came back from that broken finger uh, is when things kind of really started taking off for me.
2: Dan something interesting people remember obviously how much you exploded when you were at Gonzaga those those two seasons and and you just lit the world on fire you had the one game where you had nine threes in the first half against Loyola Marymount just countless games where you just went off i'm curious though there's something about mark few instilling confidence in his guys we saw it with adam morrison blake Stepp, yourself um you know countless other players in 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 you know in recent history too but i'm just curious from your perspective what is it about mark few that i don't that his guys seem to play so loose and and seem to just maximize their ability I think the biggest thing with Coach Few is he,
1: regardless if you're the quote unquote best player on the team or you're a new guy trying to find your way, he is honest with you. Um, And he's gonna tell you what he wants from you. He's gonna tell you what he needs from you. Um, So I think that's important. Now, unfortunately, some guys rise to that. Some guys shrink from that. Um, For me, you know, I, I rose to it. I wanted to be a guy that he could count on. I wanted him to be able to rely upon me. Um, you know, I, I think the other big thing that that was impressed upon me early in my redshirt year was, you know, I came from university of Washington, uh, as a high school player, you know, um, I was a state player of the year and I had some other big programs recruit me and then I had injuries and things didn't work out at UW for whatever reason. And so, at that point, you know you're a 19, 20 year old kid. Of course, your confidence is going to be shaking a little bit, right? You're trying to find your way as a as a Absolutely. young person. You're trying to find your way as a as a basketball player. And and something he said very clearly in my red shirt ear has always stuck out to me. And it was this: he said, "As a point guard, I don't care how many points you score. I don't care how many assists you have. I don't care how many steals you have." Uh. I do not I do care to a certain extent how many turnovers you have because I can't have you throwing the ball everywhere, but I can live with some of that. What I care about from my point guard is, did you win or did you lose? And I think what that allowed me to do is just free up my mind and free up myself to just play the way I grew up playing and play the way that I had prepared myself skill-wise so that if I had the ability to make a play or a read in a game – I just went for it i didn't think twice you know if i saw an opening uh i went for it and i think that really freed me up to you know what if i if i break this play or if i take an early three in transition i'm not doing it to you know pad my stats this and that i'm doing it because i see an opportunity to make a play for our team um and some guys get it some guys don't i was willing to, to accept the responsibility if 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 a play broke down and and I was the one to screw up for it, on it and make the turnover, so be it. You know what, coach? That was a bad play. That was a dumb play. But you know, I I think I earned his respect and earned my teammates respect and and players over the years at Gonzaga have done the same with Coach Few. Um, that if 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 your heart and in your and in your your approach to the game is in the way that you're trying to make plays, uh, to make plays for your team, he's okay
2: with it. Night of the draft, 2002, you had already done a ton of workouts. You, you were posted up in Chicago. You're flying all around, working out for everybody. And you end up getting drafted by the Atlanta Hawks. How does that happen? Good question. I mean, I had, I think, 17 workouts leading up to the draft. A couple
1: teams, uh, one or two teams I went into a second time um there was a couple teams that wanted me to work out the morning of the draft there was another team i remember wanted me to work out the day before um but it was such a grind because you're flying a crisscrossing the country um trying to figure out how to stay healthy how to stay current with your workout regimen while preparing to put your best foot forward in all these new settings um it's 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 a nervous energy 24 hours a day during that stretch um you know but how i fell to atlanta is, is really interesting because i didn't work out for them a single time um <laughs> and so the day of the draft you know you're talking to your agent consistently throughout the day hey this might happen that might happen and then once the draft ha- starts all bets are off because all, all it literally takes is one person uh maybe being taken five, six, seven slots earlier than what a lot of people projected because the team that picked that player was hiding their cards. Or it takes one guy that maybe had a red flag that came up at the last minute to really slide to completely change the complexion of the draft after those first few picks that, you know, everybody pretty much already knows who are going to be at the top of the top. Um, and so there were a lot of scenarios where there was a possibility for me to go to different spots and none of them panned out. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was looking like, uh uh-oh, all these teams that are in this next group are places that I never worked out for. And it was starting to become a little bit nerve-wracking. And then my agent had said, you know what? Atlanta never had you in for a workout because they didn't think um, they were going to have a first-round draft pick, and they thought you were going to be in this range. They're trying to find a pick mid-20s. Uh, whatever it was, 22 and on, whatever. I don't remember exactly. Um, so that might be something that happens. Uh, Atlanta, really? I had no idea. He goes, yeah, I'll I'll be in touch as, as much as I can and whenever I know more. And so lo and behold, you know, they finally found a trade partner with the Kings who had that last pick in the first round. And they the Kings selected me for the Hawks um for a prearranged trade. So an hour later or whatever it was, it was announced that I was going to Atlanta. But um uh nerve wracking little time and, and you know that's one of the things that I don't think unless you're really in it as a a medium member who follows it uh very, very closely or an agent or somebody involved in the inner circle of somebody getting drafted doesn't know how important that fine line is because um had I one more pick, I wouldn't have been in the first round, and I would not have had a guaranteed two year with a th- uh, or excuse me, I would not have had a guaranteed three year with a four year option um, because if that were the case, I probably would have been out of the league after you know a year and a half because I had a knee injury. Um, my it took me a little bit longer than than maybe hoped or expected to to get comfortable with the NBA game. Um, and I've always said, most players at all levels, whether it's college or the pros, you need three years really to get comfortable and acclimated and understand where you fit. Now there's guys that are gonna, you know, obviously not fit into the box. And I'm talking about the LeBrons, the Carmelo's, Amari Stoudemires, you know, Ben Simmons, those guys. But for the most part, you know, guys take three years to really kind of get comfortable in that pro setting. And thankfully for me at the time, The NBA first round picks were three year guarantee, fourth year option. Now it's two year guarantee, third year team option. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously that was important because the way my first two years went uh, going into that third year, no team, regardless of who held my rights. And at the time it was was Dallas and I was fighting for a training camp spot. Nobody was going to pick up my fourth year option because I didn't do enough in the first two years of my career.
0: As difficult as. Actually i can't even imagine, but as difficult as it probably was emotionally, how did you handle the the first time that you may have doubted yourself as a professional basketball player
1: uh well you know i don't i don't know if I ever necessarily doubted myself I've always been somebody who's been very confident in my skills um, but very patient waiting for an opportunity at every level. I mean, in, in, in college, it took me getting the, the right spot at Gonzaga, even though I did have a limited success at UW, you know, early in my career at, in the NBA, um, you know, my first coach, Lon Kruger, um, was a big believer in my skill set and what I could provide. Um, but then when I was hurt within out with an injury, he got fired. And Terry Stotts, uh, who, who's doing a great job in Portland now, mm-hmm. um, took over as the head coach well at that time terry's philosophy was much different than it is now um terry wanted his backup point guard to not shoot the basketball he wanted his backup point guard to pick up 94 feet and essentially just run the offense well that wasn't me that's that's not necessarily my skill set and doesn't play to my strength so i didn't fit his um his system at the time uh as well as it needed to be and so yeah your confidence gets a little bit shaken you're wanting an opportunity to, to to prove yourself to earn minutes to extend your career um and then you start getting traded bounced around here or there you know at the end of the day i always told myself that when i when i get my absolute opportunity my absolute break wherever it was going to be if if i wasn't ready for it that was going to be on me and so I was a guy that even if I was a little frustrated with minutes that I wasn't getting for whatever reason, maybe I didn't produce on a on one game and, and I fell out of the rotation, or maybe uh, I didn't fit a coach's system or philosophy at the time. I wasn't going to allow that to to deter me to f- stop working. So I always continued to work and continue to work, and I knew that in the back of my mind, at some point, there was going to be an opportunity, and that I had to be ready. And if I wasn't ready, then I would be the one who was going to kind of, you know, shortchange my opportunity in my career. And finally, you know, two and a half years in, I finally got that after Dallas traded me to New Orleans mm-hmm. and, and I had a, had a nice little run.
0: Right. And, and you joined, you joined a team with one win at the time. And then all of a sudden you break out and putting up really big numbers, but all those times that you're trading, it's a, really remarkable mindset to have that you never know when the opportunity is going to be there. So I just have to be ready. So it really is the no days off mentality that I, that I commend you for the highest level of all those trades. How many of those were you surprised by and what was the most maybe awkward trade call that you got? Sure. (laughs) Well, there
1: was a lot of them. That's for sure. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah
1: you know I think the most exciting uh, there's a couple of exciting trades the first time getting trading back to Portland uh, from Atlanta during my second year was exciting my wife was pregnant with our with our first child at the time um, and so that was great to be going back to, to our home area um, you know uh, a very disappointing trade would have been um, uh, the both times I was traded away from Portland. Um, the first time uh, I was getting traded, I was about to walk onto a, the floor for a summer league game, and, and John Nash, um, the general manager at the time, called me over and told me I was traded. Blew me out of the water. I had no idea. Um, and then, two about six weeks later, um, they traded me to Golden State. The Golden State traded me to Dallas, and I had no idea I was I was involved in any trade discussions. I'm sitting at my house. With some friends over were barbecuing in sports centers on on tv and on the bottom of the ticker scrolls the golden state warriors trade eric dampier dan dickow whoever to the dallas Men. i'm like what i had no idea um so that was an interesting
0: one um, but what do you do you know in that situation what do i do
1: yeah <laughs> uh well, I called my agent and he said, hold on, give me, give me 10 minutes. I got to call every I got to call these front offices and see what is happening because anything that he had heard leading up to that, nobody had said my name was involved in any of the trade. Um, so in the meantime, I went to the golf driving range right down the street and banged out a large bucket of balls and <laughs> let out some frustration that night. But, um, you know, the other one, um, you know, being traded from boston to portland um back home again was great but then being traded away from portland again was a difficult one and nate mcmillan gave me the call um on draft day again and said hey we we traded you to uh new york and i was just dumbfounded um because you know the organization had said that um you know they they liked um what I was what I had done the previous year, I was a mentor to the to their young pro to the to their young guys. Uh they felt that I had done a great job of coming off my injury and that um you know I was going to be somebody that, you know, was was going to be a part of what they were doing. Um and this was a month before the trade. Uh and then a couple days before the trade, Freddie Jones and I, um who also was in that trade with Portland back to New York Freddie Jones and I were at the University of Portland playing open gym with their college guys and we were just kind of sitting there talking like, hey, do you hear this trade that's going to go on? And this was, I think, two days before the draft. And we were kind of going back and forth and like, what did you hear? What did you hear? And Freddie was like, yeah, everything I've heard is it's Zach Randolph, this guy, this guy. Freddie was like, I haven't heard my name mentioned. I haven't heard your name mentioned. I was like, okay, that's kind of what I'm hearing from my agent. Lo and behold, two days later, both of us are gone. And mm-hmm. and the hard part was both of us were Portland area guys. We both grew up in the Portland area. So for both of us, that was a that was a tough one to swallow.
2: Because you got traded a bunch and I mean, like you sort of laid out, like that third season, I mean you're traded in July, traded in August, traded December, like I imagine on some level it's got to scar you to the point that there's certain things that you don't do. Like, I guess my question is, when you're playing at that point in time, is there like a bag that you just don't unpack? Is there a toiletry bag you have ready to go? How do you treat it different than the guys that know, hey, I've been with this team 10 years and and I'm probably not going anywhere for a while? Well, I
1: think early in your career as a rookie, um, you see that there's a pecking order in every locker room um you just know the especially if it's a good organization you can see the guys that are entrenched um in that organization in that franchise and and they've they've earned it I mean you know in um in a lot of organizations you can see that clearly um but if you're not um if you haven't built up that sweat equity within a within an organization if you haven't earned it yet you have to understand that at the end of the day it's a business and a lot of times they might really really like you as a player they might really really like you as a person but if they're trying to improve the team the way that they see fit and your contract number your salary allows a trade that they feel is going to help improve get them to make it work then you have to understand that's going to go and and that's I, I learned that pretty quickly that that was the case now it doesn't mean the human side of you you don't get frustrated you don't, don't get disappointed um but you also have to understand it uh you know i never bought a house in any place that i ever lo- was traded to um i always had a short-term lease uh, and we always my wife and i always made uh, the portland vancouver area our home base ever since my rookie year uh, so we had a home there where you know if, if i got traded I went to the next city and if my wife wasn't ready to go to that next city, she would go home to that, to that, to our house until kind of, we were somewhat situated, um, you know, looking back at it, um, it's an interesting life. Uh, it it was, uh, it's a unique life. I Mm -hmm. I don't think enough people understand that. Um, and I know a lot of people are going to say, well, you get paid this, that, and the other. I get that without a doubt. Um, And you, but you 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 sacrifice and and you you put in all the sweat and effort over the years to be put in a position to be a professional athlete, but you're never put in a position or you never work out like the details. Like okay, you know I've already I, I you've worked out different drills and, and workouts five thousand times in your life, but you've never been traded on a fly. And you know, in 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 a five minute stretch, where now you have to figure out, I'm moving to this city. I got to live here. I got to get a rental car. I got to get all these different things. That that is the life part that is very difficult to kind of figure out on the fly in the NBA when that happens. All
0: right, so let's let's get back on the high note then. On the court, you you mentioned that the breakout that you had with the Hornets, and then you start putting up those numbers, get those four straight double figure games right off the bat. Your first twenty point game seven games in against golden state. What did you feel when you were on the court? And then do you remember what it was like post game?
1: Yes. I mean, I I remember getting traded to to new Orleans, the GM at the time, Alan Bristow essentially said, Hey, I don't know how long you're going to be here. Um, We're, we're an organization that's figuring a lot of things out. So um, we, we, we want you to give your best while we're here and we'll see what happens and i kind of took that as a slap in the face like i got traded here and you're talking about cutting me or waving me or trading me already um and so you know i kind of knew that i got my opportunity on the court whether it was game one which i think i played four minutes my first game in new orleans or whenever it was going to be i i was going to not leave any stone unturned i was just going to attack an opportunity um and so early on you know, Byron Scott, in the first couple of shoot-arounds and practices, um, kind of was walking through, going through all the offensive, the Princeton offensive stuff that that they ran. And pretty quickly, I realized, hey, this can work really well for me if I learn this ins and outs. You know, I learned how to, you know, set guys up, which I had always had to do in college. If, if I learn how to read the defense in different situations, which I always had prided myself. Um, if I can learn this, I can find some opportunities for myself, um, you know, to get buckets or make plays for others. And, you know, then, then once you, you do it in a couple possession stretch here or there, you earn a little bit of trust, uh, from the coaches. And then once you get a couple extra minutes, you can kind of go from there. And that's essentially what I
0: did. All right. That next year then in Boston with Perk, who's speaking every hour of the day these days and Pierce with doc there and all the talk about what was going on with Paul Pierce. Did you ever hear at the time that Pierce wanted out of Boston at that time? No, not at all. Um, huh. you know,
1: I was, I signed the three-year deal. I was looking forward to being in Boston for all, all three years. Um, yeah, the short bit of time that I was in Boston, I loved it. Uh, It was awesome. Um, Who wouldn't want to go play for the Boston Celtics? Who wouldn't want to go look up in the practice facility before practice gets started uh, and you see all those championship banners? Who doesn't want to see the parquet floor when you're getting extra shots up after practice? Um, You know, it just happened to be one of those things where, um, you know, I had had a Achilles um, that had been sore for quite some time. And unfortunately one, one day one game about 25 games into the season it just ruptured and you know at that point i don't blame boston for when i they had an opportunity the following summer to kind of unload a contract from somebody they they didn't know what to expect from anybody coming off an achilles hey if we can package this contract into a trade let's go for it um but then you talk about that team um you know we weren't i don't i don't think we it's hard to say. Did we underachieve? Did we overachieve? Whatever. I mean, we had some 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 skill on that team. Uh, Paul is obviously one of the best players I've ever played with or against. Um, Rafe LaFrentz was was a solid player. Mark Blunt had some stretches. Perkins was still a young player trying to find his way. Same with Al Jefferson. Um, you know, we had uh, Delonte West, um, Marcus Banks, uh, Scalabrini, as you mentioned.
0: We Tony had, we had Allen. some
1: personalities for sure in that locker room. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Perk talking a lot these days. He did it in our poker games. We we used to have a little group. Oh, I can't forget Ricky Davis either. in that crew, um, we had a, we had a, we had a group that played poker on every flight. It, it was typically myself, Scalabrini, Perkins, uh, Ryan Gomes and Paul Pierce. Um, and uh there there was some epic trash talking for sure during those uh during those poker games i i don't remember any exact examples but i just remember there was a lot of talk because perk and uh and paul definitely would go at somebody uh in a second
0: what what was the most money in the center of that pot to be honest with you it wasn't it wasn't a crazy amount uh typically what
1: we did is, is we would play you know uh we would play tournament style everybody would buy in for i mean i don't know a couple hundred bucks and it would be you'd get your chips and then it would be winner take all at the end of the flight um and i do remember paul came up with with uh, with with a good nickname for me although it was frustrating at the time uh he called me runner up because literally i i was the best poker player on that flight every time but I probably won one out of fifty times, and I got second probably <laughs> thirty-five times.
0: That sucks, that sucks. Especially, especially when it's winner take all. Yeah, it sucks. Who, so who was winning most of the time?
1: Uh, I mean, it was it, everybody seemed to win. I know Paul really got into it. Um, Perk, Perk, what got into it? Uh, Ryan Gomes was a pretty good poker player, if I remember right. And then and, and Scow, no, you can't read Scow. I mean, you guys know Brian Scalabrine well enough. I mean, he he's a heck of a personality, um, and and so that that always made it fun too.
2: Of all the the poker you played in the uh, NBA, who is who is the best player outside of yourself?
1: I wouldn't even put myself in that category as being a, a really good poker player. Um, you know, it was just something that. It, when I was in college we had a, a group of teammates that got into it and so we started playing all the time um, you know we that was right at the peak of when the World Series of Poker started going and uh, you know honestly the probably the best poker player that that I know of um, was actually a college teammate Blake step um, he actually was in Vegas for a short bit contemplating kind of being becoming a poker pro um, I know he played in, I think, a couple of the smaller World Series events. Um, but he would have been a really good poker player.
2: Uh, speaking of teammates, Dan, you had a chance to play in Portland with Brandon Roy and LaMarcus Aldridge when they were both rookies. Um, what were they like at that time? And, and what kinds of things did they, did they still need to learn?
1: Well, they were both great players early on. You know, I got along well with both of them. Um, you know, Lamarcus is, is, uh, is kind of a shy, um, kind of personality. He kind of kept to himself a little bit, but, but we became, um, you know, good teammates. I would say friends, obviously I, I haven't stayed in touch with him just because people's career takes them in different ways. But, um, you know, I enjoyed being teammates with him. You could tell that he was going to become a very good player. Um, and he has, I mean, he's carved out a, an amazing career. Uh, Brandon is somebody that I've stayed in touch with a little bit more, just because you know we're both both Northwest guys. Uh, the work that I do with Scorebook Live, um, you know, I he 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 know he he knows what we do. We cover his team a little bit. Uh, some of our guys in our offices have interviewed him at, at times for some of the things that we're doing. Um, but early on, you could tell with Brandon that. Um, he had a poise and a maturity about him that very few rookies do and this was my fifth year in the league so i had kind of been around seen plenty of guys and he had a kind of a poise about him that uh is hard to explain for such a young guy not a lot rattled him um he was very skilled um and then also as a young young player he was willing to kind of uh, voice his opinion in a in a very good way i mean a lot of guys at that age Um, in their career they want to voice their opinion but they're not quite sure how to do it Um, and and I thought he he balanced that really well early in his
2: career how does he do that Dan
1: well I I think you know if if you're a rookie and you're going to come in and you're going to start you know becoming a leader of a team and giving directions or and or criticism um, you have to be able to produce yourself I mean take for example myself as a rookie I would have been older years wise than Brandon Roy was as a rookie in Portland, but I wasn't producing. I was sitting on the bench because I had a knee injury. No one's going to listen to a rookie who hasn't been through the battles or hasn't shown that they can produce or, you know, is is are, is are doing the things that he was doing at the time. Um, so I think, you know, the fact that he was able to um, come in, earn people's, you know, and respect, by the way, by how hard he worked, also by, you know, how he was producing and that he was, uh, he wasn't a rookie that came in and just started spouting off, um, crazy things because unfortunately some guys do, you know, he kind of, you know, sat back and kind of watched and learned and, and figured out what needed to be said rather than just saying something early on. And I think that's, uh, that is something that a lot of, uh, you know, young players can learn. Um, it's it's something where you might have an opinion, or you might have done something in college, and you move to the pros, and, and um, you want to say something, but you don't necessarily know how the pro game works just yet, or you don't know how uh, how how to express it at the next level, because there is a fine fine adjustment that has to be made in in how you view the game.
0: With all the advice that is handed out in the league, what's the Worst piece of advice you got in the league? <laughs> huh. Hmm. Ah. Uh, wow. Um.
1: Well, I mean, I. Unfortunately, my my rookie year preseason, I had a couple. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but there was a couple players who. Um, Asked me to go out with them to uh, a couple establishments and asked if I did certain things and um, you know uh, I said no I don't do that and never once was asked (laughs) to go out with them again (laughs) Um, you know like I said one of them was was you know gone by the the time the season started another Mm -hmm. one was was I believe traded shortly thereafter not because of that but just in general just um, you know I think that would be (laughs) probably about the only experience that. for bad advice that I was given,
2: I can't believe you don't go go karting. That's weird. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's exactly. Well, I think it was uh, Top Golf, but they didn't have that at the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> big, big go karting scene in Atlanta. That's why. Yeah. That's why a lot of guys always said, "I'll, I'll visit Atlanta, but I don't want to play for the Hawks." <laughs> it's the. Uh, yeah, it's definitely all the go karting. The the final stop in your career with with the Clippers. Do you have a? Donald Sterling experience that you look back on now and say, oh.
1: That's that's a hard one. I mean, you know, I, obviously everybody knows what, what the end of the Clippers and the Donald Sterling ownership era looked like. And, and um, thankfully the NBA has gotten through that, um, you know, ugliness. Um, and they've got a phenomenal owner now, in, in Steve Ballmer, who I, I think is doing things very well. They've got a tremendous coach in Doc Rivers. Um, you know, but I think, you know, looking back, I think the one thing that I remember, um, you know, was just seeing him courtside um, at, on occasion. Um, I, I never had more than one, a couple conversations with him and, and only one that at length. And I wouldn't even say it was at length. It was more so along the lines of I had a good game and I ran into him and, and his wife and his little group at the loading dock with my family before I got in the car. And, and, and I guess, you know, that day um, they had given, you know, some of the kids uh, of the, the players a Christmas gift or something. Um, and so they had asked if my young daughter liked her present. Um, and so kind of had
2: small talk for a short bit. But I never had any discussions uh, at length with him at all. Some quick hitters for you, and then uh, and then we'll let you go. You were a Blazers fan as a kid, and then, and you sort of alluded to that. Like, but then you get traded to Portland. In that moment, what do you try to grasp onto as someone who was a fan of a team as a kid, and now you're playing for that team as as a as an adult professional?
1: I mean, dream come true.
2: I mean, you know, I was
1: that kid who I was born in in, in Northeast Portland. I moved to Vancouver, which is 15 minutes north, right across the Columbia River. Uh, when I was in second grade, you know, I was I got to go to one Blazer game a year um, when I was growing up because the tickets were that hard to come by for the okay. Memorial Coliseum. Twelve thousand six hundred sixty-six people got in the arena, um, and it was that hard a ticket. We got basically to go to one game a year uh, until the Rose Garden was built. They call it the Moda Center now. I'll never call it that. It's the Rose Garden, um,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
1: um, and so. I was that one kid who had a dream to, to be a Blazer when I was little, and it came came true. <laughs> Not only did it happen once, it happened twice as a player, and then it happened a third time uh, being able to be on their coaching staff for a year. Um, so, you know, positively I get to say I had a, my dream come true. I was a part of the Blazers three times, but unfortunately I can also say um, I got fired from the Blazers three times as well, once fired as a coach, twice traded as a player. So
0: you still a Blazers fan?
1: I'm a Damian Lillard fan, without a doubt. Um, okay. I was on the uh, I was on the coaching staff um, during summer league right before his rookie year. I, I put him through his pre-draft workout in Portland with Caleb Canalis, uh, where he, he he made it very evident and very clear that he was the guy that Portland needed to draft. Um, we've stayed in touch a couple times. Um, you know, I haven't talked to him in, in over a year, probably. Um, but I, I cheer for Damien. I think he's got a, a he's a, a tremendous person. I think he's a phenomenal basketball player. Um, so I cheer for him first,
0: you know, then I cheer for the Blazers second. What was it about that draft workout that made y'all realize that he's the guy?
1: I didn't miss a shot. Like literally, I mean, it was like an hour workout and I think he missed like seven shots the whole hour and they were shot. They were, they were, some, you know, uncontested, just spot shots at all at all angles, off the dribble, off pick and roll, catch and shoot, off movement. Um, and then I had the pleasure of guarding him or trying oh, to guard Jesus. him at the time when I was a couple of years out of, you know, playing. Oh, um, <laughs> where they, you know, I was young enough to where they were like, they said, hey, let's have you guard him, get physical in these situations, you know, change your angles, you know, bump him here. Let's see how he reads things when we're going to go and pick and roll kind of read you know push up here change the look and so i was kind of the guy that 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 guarded it um the whole time i was in charge of kind of figuring out hey i'm going to test him here i'm going to go for a steal i'm going to see you know i'm going to bump him here let's see how he handles a little bit of pressure if he retreats and then attacks, or if he spins off of off of the contact um i mean all in all it was just um you know a phenomenal workout because that year Myself and Caleb Canales ran pretty much all of the pre-draft workouts um, leading to the draft. And so we had seen everybody. We had seen, you know, Tony Roten at UW. We had seen Kendall Marshall, North Carolina. We had seen all the other guards that were talked about as, you know, being good. And hands down, Damian was the clear-cut best of all of them that year.
2: All right. so Lillard's from Weber State. You've got Steph Curry that played at Davidson. You played at Gonzaga at a point where obviously you guys were were one of the top teams in the country, but still can be considered a mid-major almost at the time. But you had a lot of freedom as a point guard. I've theorized for a while that that there might be something about point guards who get a chance to have freedom at the college level, face a lot of double teams, all that. How much truth do you think there is to that?
1: You know, I've never heard it put in those terms, but I 100% agree with that. You know, you throw C.J. McCollum into the mix as well. I mean, you look at – Um, so many times you get these guys these guards that are at the power five schools and they're very good but they also then have five six seven really good teammates who also have visions of being in the NBA and so you kind of have to balance that right but if you are at a smaller school and if if your team has to rely upon you to produce night in and night out, to have a chance to win, have a chance to win a league title, get to an NCAA tournament, you have to be on every night. And so it puts a lot of pressure and a lot of weight on your shoulders. Um, But then it also means that if you're that guy, then every other team, their scouting report is going to be built to slow you down and stop you. And then you have to figure out how to, how to go about beating a team that's focused is number one to slow you down. So that's a really good point you make.
0: And quick hitters take us all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason why we're asking any of these in any certain order. What's the one practice, the one practice from your NBA career that you'll never forget? Uh, For any reason. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, I, I, there's a couple in Atlanta that were, were pretty interesting. Um, you know, but I think the one in Atlanta, I, I, I got a the closest I've ever gotten into a fist fight with a teammate was with Jacques Vaughn in Atlanta, my second year. Um, you know, I had mentioned Terry Stotts, um, kind of had, you know, viewed his backup point guard as some of he wanted to kind of be, uh, control the game, control the team, not shoot, pick up 94 feet. Well, Um, that was Jacques Vaughn's game to a tee and Jacques understood his role. He knew how to, he knew how to execute his role, um, and kind of came in and and took some of the minutes that I wanted. And so we always kind of got along, but we also knew at the same time we were competing for the same minutes. Um, you know, he was a very physical player in practice. Um, I would compete at practice. I wouldn't back down from anything, but I do remember one day in practice, uh, that we both kind of just got fed up with it right? <laughs> and we got a little more physical and a little more physical. And then we kind of both, uh, uh, I think we each threw each other to ground at least once or twice, um, in a different, in, in some different drills, I, I believe it was pick and roll stuff one time. And then again, later on where you're kind of working on, you know, digging down in the post and then having to guard a post, uh, at multiple areas on the floor. And we got into a little bit and, uh, you know that's the only time i mean i've always respected opponents i've always respected teammates i've never backed down from anybody but i also know that there's a clear line that you don't you don't cross um and so um
2: you know that would have been an interesting one where we we definitely got at it and were heated that day uh where on the where do you look when you shoot the basketball where on the rim
1: i'm a big believer that you just look at the rim itself I know some people say front of the rim some people say back of the rim. uh my mind frame is of the fact that if you've taken enough shots over the course of your life your brain acts as a computer and it can kind of get that depth perception uh in a matter of you know a split second now and the reason i say that is because you're shooting the basketball up and it goes through a target you're not shooting it at like in a straight line it would be different if I was shooting, you know, say a BB gun or, or, or a rifle where, you know, that, at that point I think you do take uh, one specific target and focus in on
2: that. All right. Well, here's the, um, the question we always end the podcast with, and that is we are the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So we always ask, you need a bucket. Who do you go to? Former teammate, let's say. Oh, we should. Maybe we say Gonzaga. All-time Gonzaga player. What about
0: that, Noah? An I'm going to I'll go, I'll go Gonzaga or NBA teammate. Fine. All right. G- g- yeah, okay. sure. Well, if
2: I got to Who I'll do you choose you to go, go ISO, reject the screen, go ISO, and go get you a bucket? If I got to go with a former NBA teammate,
1: I'm going to go with Paul Pierce. Um, Dirk's a hard one to go away from, uh, but I'm going to go Paul. Um, and Brandon Roy's a hard one to go away from too, but I'll go Paul. Uh, Gonzaga? Not a teammate, just a former Gonzaga player. Um, You got to go with Adam Morrison.
0: Former guest on this podcast as well. He's Dan Dickow. Check out the work that he's doing at the quarantine series. The podcast is really good, and I know it's just getting started. Scorebook Live, all the work he's doing there as well, out there in the state of Washington. Dan, we really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for all the time. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Have a great one. We always said everybody's got a story. And I think he I think he was traded 18 times in like 6 weeks. <laughs> but but he was I think he was traded 8 times officially in his 6 years. And that's got to be he he did touch on it how nobody prepares you for the life side of it and yes there's a lot of money to be made here but when he gets traded Away from home, and his wife is pregnant with their first kid, and then missing all that stuff. Nothing, nothing can prepare you for that.
2: No, and just the extent of it happening over and over and over and over again, and again, it's weird because I think he he really brings it up. That of course you put it into perspective. Of course, it's a lifestyle people want, but they they don't realize how lonely the NBA can be, and the fact that it's a business. I think he he did a nice job just explaining what that can be like. He was the he was on the Warriors for a month. Never played a game. You know, that's that's incredible to me. There there must be a Dan out Warriors jersey floating should have around asked there. Him. Yeah, we should have asked I, him I, if I anyone's ever- I'll, uh, I'll reach out to him. maybe he has one, you know, that's that's hanging up in the, the barbershop or
0: something. No, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. But you should ask him if anyone's ever asked him to sign a Dan Dickow Ooh. Warriors jersey. Ooh, now that's a that is a great
2: question. Yeah, there's will, always uh, Always, have to. how
0: about being traded on two straight draft nights, huh? I mean, that's—I know the guy's got to come to dread draft night, and then being out there with his buddies, and you get the—you see it on the ESPN scroll, and then your agent doesn't even know that this had happened. It's... how about that? Yeah, it's, yeah how it's, do you not It's gutting. It. it is gutting.
2: I mean, it. I. I. You got to have some level of. Uh... PTSD where you're just oh no honey we're going to get traded again i can right. i can feel it and then by the way how about the great irony in his career where he's traded to the hornets they say yeah don't know what's going to happen with you we're one in 13 who knows what the future holds you're probably gone and he goes on to have his best his best season as a right, pro which
0: led to his contract with the Celtics incredible all right so once again podcast brought to you by builtbar.com Built bars, best tasting, low sugar, high protein. It's like a candy bar without all that sugar. Not even as much sugar as a Cliff Bar. Go there. Locked on is the promo code, $10 off your first order. Get that mix box because all the flavors are really good. So get that mix box. You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaismithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V, at rejecting underscore the underscore screen. Everything else going on on the Locked On Podcast Network, Locked On Fancy Hoops with Josh Lloyd, Locked On NBA, five days a week, Hollinger and Duncan every Monday. And of course, your team every day on the Locked On Podcast Network. Adam, thanks pal. You are the best.